Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest joining us from Canada is Nina Montienu, and uh, we'll be talking about her new book, um, A Diary in the Age of Water. Uh, A Diary in the Age of Water follows the climate-induced journey of Earth and humanity through four generations of women, each with a unique relationship to water. The novel explores identity, or, uh, yeah, explore, explores ident- and identify our concept of what normal is as a nation and individual in a world that is rapidly and incomprehensibly changing. Nina Mantienu is a Canadian ecologist and internationally published novelist um, of science fiction and fantasy. In addition to a published novel, Nina has written award-winning, uh, award-nominating uh, short stories, articles, and nonfiction books, which have been translated into several languages throughout the world. You can find out more by visiting Nina's website, which is ninamantianu.ca, and that's N-I-N-A-M-U-N-T-E-A-N-U.ca. And with that, I'd like to welcome Nina to the show. Good day, Nina. Good day. I'm anxious to talk about this topic today because I think it's an, an important topic and and um, really want to you know dive into not only the, the topic but also you know the the book itself. So first of all, you're in a Canadian ecologist, like I mentioned. Um, so um, can you tell us about um, when um, did you? start your when, when did the the focus of ecology kind of come into your life and you know, take up my focus uh, was, was little Nina uh, <laughs> ecological you aware <laughs> yeah it, it did it started with me as a little kid uh, I don't know how old I was but um, I got I was aware of, of littering I remember that I remember being annoyed that all this junk was all over the place. And I really did. I went on a um, pick-up litter um, rampage as a little kid. And I remember uh, trying to get my parents to recycle, and this was later on in, in high school or late elementary school, and I would put up posters in the school telling people to save the planet. I mean, this was quite a while ago. This was long before the talk of global warming, which brought us toward, you know, a planetary uh, existence or feeling, right, that we're, we're, uh, we're citizens of the planet. And, and it, was, it was, I was already thinking about the planet at that point. It was, it was bizarre. I grew up, I think part of it is because my uh, sister and brother, my older sister and brother, I was a little one that followed them and tagged along everywhere. We lived, um, we would go into the forest, which was right behind our house, and we played there mm-hmm. all the time. And that was our environment. We loved it there. We made, uh, we told stories there. We explored. 
we made magic potions with nightshade and moss and water and dirt and and then <laughs> did all kinds of things. We probably did all kinds of things to animals and insects too, but I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Those are kind of blocked out. For, for, yeah, for, yeah. For, <laughs> they were traumatic. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Oh, very likely, you know, pulling wings off flies and things. <laughs> I'm sure my brother did that, and then I just kind of followed. <laughs> uh, well, yes, that's, I understand that. Um, so, um, so now... You, with that interest, you went on for um, to get educated education in um, ecology. I did, I did. But you know, before that, um, so there I was interested in ecology, but more uh, just in, as an interest in, in nature as a little kid. And I really wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, mm. you know, uh, be like the Beatles. Wanted to be a paperback writer and. I told stories. I got my older brother and sister, and this was quite a feat because I'm the little one, right? I got them to act out in plays that I wrote, and I would direct them, and we'd do it in front of our parents. <laughs> so I was a real storyteller. And then I would uh, uh, tell stories with my sister late, in, late at night. We were in, supposed to be sleeping in bed, and we were telling stories and, and uh, scaring each other. <laughs> anyway, I mean... So I wanted to be a writer, but my parents kind of dissuaded me because I kind of also wanted to be a comic artist along with a writer. I wanted to write comics is really what I wanted to do. And my <laughs> dad basically said, this isn't a career. You know, you've got to do something else. So um, I, I did. I, I married that, that interest in the environment finally to a biology degree, and that's what I did. I switched into um, sciences and learned biology, and from there I learned ecology, and from there I focused on limnology, which is the study of water. And as you can see, that's where my focus ended up, with the study of water. And uh, I haven't looked back since. And of course, well, what I have done is I've married that now. I've been a limnologist for 20 years, practicing out there as a consultant, as an environmental consultant. And I brought back my love of writing and I merged the two into what is now called eco-fiction but what most people call science fiction or speculative fiction or even climate fiction. Yeah, I like that, cli-fi. <laughs> when I read yeah, cli-fi. That's a, a clever, yeah, that's clever. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's um, obviously your love of writing comes out because how many, I mean, you, you published quite a bit. Um, so, I, I have. Um, I, I've sort of lost track. I, I think I have 14 books out there, but some of them are nonfiction. I tend to do a mm-hmm. nonfiction. I I do a tandem. I do a nonfiction one year and then a fiction another, and it usually takes me about a year to research and write the book and then uh, get it out to a publisher. And so I have several nonfiction which uh, deal with either writing, because I teach writing at U of T, uh, and various other places, I do workshops for writers, and and my love of the of telling stories. So I also do short stories. So uh, I keep myself busy back and forth with all those things. <laughs> that's great. It's it's wonderful to be able to be doing what you 
winded when you were a child. <laughs> you know, to be able to have that. You're um, so right, Robert. Uh, Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> they say that. <laughs> yeah. No, they say follow your passion. And people yeah. kind of almost forget that. You know, they get into that whole duty-bound thing. Uh, as I was yeah. saying, back back when I wanted to be a cartoonist uh, and a graphic novelist, um, my dad basically said, nope, you know, you can be... He didn't outright say you you can't do anything. He he was really good. My my family were really good about that. But he basically said, you know, the be- your best option <laughs> is teacher or nurse. And you know what's funny? I am a teacher, and I teach nursing courses. That's wonderful. Yeah. So now, the, before the diary in the age of water, you had a book called um, "What Water Is." I yeah, is water that, is. That's just it's just water called is. water yeah. is, and then dot dot water dot. Water is. Yeah, yeah. So tell us tell us about that that particular one because then we can move into the diary. Okay, that's great. It it came about. Um, that was a book that percolated for many years when I became a limnologist quite a while ago. I mean, I've been a limnologist now for 25 years practicing uh, my craft in limnology. Um, I always wanted to have a book out to write a textbook for the lay public to understand limnology and the study of water and the, uh, all the wonderful uh, properties of water from a layman's point of view without you know, getting stuck with scientific terms and all that kind of stuff. So I I kind of, I guess I delayed that for years and years, thinking that I wasn't in the right place yet. I wasn't, I didn't have the expertise yet. But, you know, after 25 years, you pretty much have it. Yeah, but but something else came in there to delay. And what, what that mm. was, was had to do with, ironically, had to do with my established career as a limnologist and what I was finding in the study of water, particularly in Europe and Asia and other places other than North America, a lot of science in the water, in the area of water, is weird science because, and Hmm. it makes sense, because water is weird. Really, it has over 70, 70 anomalous properties, and every one of those properties pretty much is life-giving. I mean, just think of that for a minute. That's just wild. Mm. So um, what I mean by that is in it, it, water has three states, right? Um, liquid, mm-hmm. gas, solid. And then it has transition states between those. So when it's going from one to the other, there's also a, a state, which we don't talk mm, about. Okay. But it does do that. Um, so that's almost like between liquid and solid, for instance, is the, is the liquid gel. At any rate, water's anomalous properties have to do with any particular state that it's in. So when it's a gas, it's different than all other gases. When it's a liquid, again, different from all other liquids. But it's also different in that in its transition states, in transitioning from one to the other. You can imagine how the anomalous properties just pile up, pile up, and pile up. Um, So in looking at this, the Europeans particularly 
were forwarding all kinds of, shall I say, unique and original ideas that weren't necessarily science-sounding. And they were really mm-hmm. using the author's premise by saying, what if? What What if it's this? What What is going on here? They were in the... And they, this is how um, a lot of sciences, scientists in Europe go into the sciences uh, with that kind of ex- exploratory um, mm-hmm. mentality. Bent. The North mm-hmm. Americans, by and large, not to put people into bubbles and things, although <laughs> we're doing that these days a lot, right. um, kind of poo-pooed that. They said, that's not proper science. You need to use the scientific method, the hypothesis, and do this. It needs to be replicatable, blah blah blah, that kind of stuff. Wouldn't so hypotheses a, be? Wouldn't wouldn't hypotheses be the what if? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, the thing is that um, what a lot of the European scientists were were just going into discovery mode, so there was no real hypothesis. Oh. Let's see what. Oh, I see. Here. Okay. And then they oh, would okay. go back and explain. And, and this is the I kind of science okay. that is often, you're right, it's, it's you know, uh, the North American scientists had a right to look at this with a little bit of scans, but what they were also doing is they're limiting mm. their visibility, as Goethe would say. Right. So um, right. I was faced with, you know, I, I thought a lot of these things were amazing. So one example, for instance, is the premise that water has memory. There's one. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to prove. And and is that the case? And it also depends very much on what your definition of memory is. So there's a whole discussion around that. And by and large, a lot of what the Europeans were, were doing with looking at uh, not so much proof, but indications that this is the case, were poo-pooed by the North Americans. So here I am a traditional limnologist practicing traditional science, hypothesis-based, right. all this kind of stuff, and delving into this area, which I thought was amazing and enlightening on some level. So that was my second set of delays. Do I publish this book based and include this kind of stuff, which some call pseudo mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. at the very least weird science, um, do I include that and run the risk of being poo-pooed myself? <laughs> or or do I stay with the straight and narrow and just create this dull textbook for the lay public? Well, you, you know which way I went. But it took me a while <laughs> to get there. Believe me. Uh-huh. So I sweated a couple of years, not because I didn't know enough, because I knew too much. <laughs> yeah. But it came out, wow. and and it was uh, received very well. There were a few people who who kind of you know thought, all right, this is on the edge. Um, mm-hmm. But by and large, the scientific community accepted it. Which you know, I I had to make that decision that I didn't care if they did or didn't, and that's what allowed right. Me. Um, and as it turns out, people like Margaret Atwood loved it. So who cares? <laughs> <laughs> My granddad would like this too. He did, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, it's see, that's the that's the dilemma with when it comes um, to to science. You know, 
you know, because science has its limits in measurement. I mean, I mean, just by its very nature, you know, it puts a box around things where, you know, yeah. some things, you know, can't be measured in a box, you know. So, um, you know, it, it, yeah, so it's just one of those things. That, and, and, and I can understand why, um, you know, some of that, you know, because you work hard to establish your reputation, you know, you're, you know, being being poo pooed by your, you know, your um, colleagues, you know, can be yeah, exactly. um, you know, it can be a yeah, it can be a challenge. That's your yeah. community, right? And as they yeah. say, and, and rightfully so, it takes forever. Well, it takes a long time to get get a reputation. It takes very yeah. little to lose it, and once it's gone, that's it. Yeah. Unless you yeah, change your yeah, identity or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was under a pseudonym. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know the. Um, anyway, I, I think that you know it's, it's wonderful that that you you know chosen the right that you did. Um, you know when when you were talking about the um, European approach, you know that what if, and um, and then you talked about how they would kind of you know, look basically at the evidence and then, you know, and then kind of work back toward like a hypothesis kind of thing. You know, yeah. to me, yeah. it sounded like reverse engineering. You know, you're looking at what you have and you're going to work backwards until, you know, you find out the components and what it's exactly, all about. Exactly, Robert. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And it now, is. A, it, um, it's a yeah. different way of, of finding things, of discovery. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it is less limited but it's more risky. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, it's, like I say, you know, when it comes to discovery and learning the big picture, the biggest picture you can, um, it, it requires a lot of times different approaches. And then really so many, you know, major breakthroughs. And I mean, so much is discovered through, you know, um, you know, taking chances and looking at things Sometimes by accident. Sometimes <laughs> often a, the greatest discovery will come from a mistake or a, a, an accident that happens, and, and then the scientist is aware enough to take advantage of that and go, whoa, what did I just see here? And then lead it yeah. to the next thing. I mean, Louis Pasteur yeah. with penicillin, it was the same thing there. There's, I could name a whole bunch of them. I can't think of them all, but there are lists and lists yeah. of people who have, uh, as scientists, have discovered something um, from a, yeah, a chance event. So it's it's more yeah. about keeping your eyes open and being open to discovery. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, before I get distracted and continue on, the idea of water having memory. <laughs> what, yeah. what, what, has, what has your um, look into that kind of shown you? Well, I have a whole and chapter. I know you said it because, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have just, a whole chapter then, on water is. Sorry? Okay. No, I was going to say, you know, just kind of like a, um, kind of like a, a high high level, you know. I mean, I know that you want to, you can go into detail, but um, you know, the that and it depends on what your definition of memory. But yeah, yeah um, it does. What, what, what is it? Mm-hmm. So if we look at um, if we look simply at 
the uh, most mundane, I guess call it mundane uh, description or, or definition of memory. Uh, if you think of muscle memory, your own muscle mm-hmm. memory, right. think of material mm-hmm. science, that uh, elasticity, for instance, that's all memory. It's it's the memory of a solid rem- remembering, quote, in quotes, what it is the position that it's meant to be in, and then it's been stretched out of that, and then it comes back to that. That's memory. So on a on that level, you can imagine the potential for memory that that isn't necessarily mm. what we normally think of uh, is a, a brain remembering an event, you know. But it's oddly enough, it's very similar. There are similarities. So it's not unlike. Um, I don't know if you you know the the forester Suzanne Simard who has been studying trees and the mycorrhiza in in trees uh, for quite no, a bit of time. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. But she talks about trees communicating to each other, and mm-hmm. some people go, "What? They don't talk to each other." And we're seeing things from an anthropocentric uh, view again, limited view. She means by communication that they have some element that they share, and in this case, it's chemistry, it's chemicals that they share that allows them to communicate to each other. So look, that's why I said it depends on how you define things. It yeah. really depends yeah. on on that more than anything. Uh, having said that, there are folk who believe, and I'll use the word believe. Um, that water does have uh, an identity. Others who suggest that water is life, has life. Um, so that's reaching out into an area. And, and, and having said that, that water is out actually altruistic. If we go into that area, mm. then we are definitely reaching beyond the sciences. <laughs> we are reaching right. into... Mm-hmm spirituality, we are reaching into an other level of truth and who's to say? What, you know, what do we know capital capital K no versus little k no? And what mm-hmm. can science um, prove or demonstrate and what can it not do so? And you mentioned that already. This This topic alone, water having memory, is is an amazing one because it galvanizes all those ways of thinking into a place that you really need to um, understand yourself a bit more to be able to answer that. So I don't know if that's my roundabout way of answering that question. I go over a lot of that in the book, in the chapter, and, and I come back, and you'll you'll know where I stand if you read that chapter. <laughs> Um, I'm very open to things, and yeah. yet I am a traditional scientist. I still am that. Mm-hmm. I can't not be that. Right. So when I apply my science, uh, not unlike Robin Wall Kimmerer, I don't know if you, you know her work, an indigenous professor out in uh, uh, northern states somewhere. I can't remember which state she teaches. She's a, a an ecologist, biologist, and an indigenous mm-hmm. person who understands that you can be spiritual and scientific at the same time. And and I totally yeah. agree. 
they do not counter each other. They complement each other. But it's a question of, again, coming back to understanding self and understanding that science is a tool, and it's a way of reaching right. a truth. Um, and then it has an understanding also at the same time that it has its limits. And then beyond that comes the spiritual. And again, when it comes to water and water's properties, as I mentioned before, it it just it begs for this kind of thinking going beyond that because of so many anomalous properties that water has. The fact that it's life-giving in every one of those properties. The fact that those properties are bizarre. Water really is weird in how it <laughs> functions and what it does. It Almost every property is, is you can almost relate a kind of miracle to it because it it defies mm-hmm. current science right now. And uh, that in itself is, it, it, you know, it brings more to it, to the table, uh, which is also why I got so fascinated with water. Never mind that I, you know, I worked with water for a long time, but the more I work with it, the more fascinated I am with it, and the more I realize I don't know much about it. Yeah. Yeah, the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is that. And and water is a great one for that. I mean, if we all focused on water, in some ways that would answer all the questions that we're asking about everything else, including climate change and, and uh, where you stand on this issue and do you believe in that. Somehow water intersect, intersects all those. Yeah. Um. One of the things that, that I was wondering is, I mean, obviously you you know water. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you've been looking at it. You know, you've been exploring, you know, what it is, which is, um, I think, wonderful. Now, is there a um, a burden <laughs> as a limnologist kind of seeing things, I mean, through this prism? That's a... Interesting question. Very interesting question. I got asked that some another time, and it took me by surprise. Um, you know, the answer to that for me is it's both. Like anything that is important mm-hmm. to you, to your core self, that challenges your being, who you are, what you value, and where you're going. Because in knowing... You can't unknow, right? That, that's yeah, that's a big right. one. And this is, I think, at the root of why so many, so many of us seek ignorance, because you know that that adage, ignorance is mm. does make mm. sense. There is some something in that, but to purposefully seek it for solace, yeah. there can be many reasons. There's, you know. Most of us are coping with something, right? We are trying to just not know that so that it doesn't burden us. So, yes, it is a burden. But it's a burden that, to be honest, most of the time I gladly carry. And I think, I'd like to think, I mean, I've been working with water for now over 30 years, either as a limnologist or a writer, to do with water, to getting the word out, getting knowledge out to the lay public, to others, to visionaries, to influencers, uh, to do with treating our environment better, etc., etc. 
that I I uh, ascribe to again to repeat Robin Wall Kimmerer and and her excellent books Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, and she talks about a gift economy. And what she's talking about is a paradigm of living of what we value, which is why she uses the word economy. What do we value and how do we live? And it's it surrounds this concept of gift giving, of giving and accepting gifts, and that each individual, each every everything, not just people, but animals, plants, rocks, mm-hmm. everything on this planet has a gift. You know, the robin has its gorgeous song. Um, water has many gifts. Each of us has a gift to to look more, you know, closer on a fractal basis. I mean, humanity, you could say humanity has a gift overall. The gift of storytelling, perhaps. The gift of knowing, of understanding, finally understanding and appreciating the world and giving back through story. But each individual in humanity has a gift and one of the things that's important for us is to learn what that gift is and to go back to what you were talking about, the burden. I'd like to think mm-hmm. that's my gift. And, and therefore it's again, a labor of love. They call, they have, there's that thing. Mm-hmm. It comes with knowing that you're doing the right thing and feeling very, very good at the core of yourself. And I think it's because yeah. you're in touch with your gift. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a great deal of satisfaction when you know you recognize you're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and, Truly, uh, and you know it's funny. It comes back yeah. to doing what you're passionate about, and we mentioned that yeah. before. And what you have a passion for, truly a passion for, is usually related to something that's bigger than you are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the, for for many. That's the the motivation, you know, that that really is drives and, and, and would lead someone to maybe write a book <laughs> that might challenge the scientific community, or you know, those kinds of things. You know, it, it's that passion it. that kind of yeah. takes it that one step further. Mm-hmm. Take it that step further that scares the heebie-jeebies out of you, <laughs> and um, and in fact, they. Wise people say these are uh, to do with writing. It's one of the rule number one or one of the top rules in writing is if what you're writing doesn't scare you, you're, you haven't reached that place yet where you're writing something great because it should scare you. And it's funny, each time that I put out something that really scared me, it's it's worked out really well. There you <laughs> I'm go. happy to report. Well, <laughs> So for all those scared author to be out there, <laughs> truly, that's, a, that's it is. a good thing. Well, we're going to take a, excuse me a quick break, Nina, um, and then when we come back, I want to shift to talking about a diary in the age of water. Okay. 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 Great. Everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website 
ByteRadio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,400 shows we have had over the past nine years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, photography, a wellness store, and self-publishing assistance. Our show is a free podcast on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on many social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms at the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest joining us today from Canada is Nina Montiano, and uh, we are talking about her new book, A Diary in the Age of Water. And again, you can find out more by visiting Nina's website, which is ninamontianu.ca, and that's N-I-N-A-M-U-N-T-E-A-N-U.ca. And from there, you can see all the different types of books that she has to offer. Okay, with that, we're back, Nina. Hi, Robert. Hey. Okay, so Diary in the Age of Water is um, is a novel, um, a fiction. Um, so can you tell us a little bit um, about the storyline? Okay. Um, basically, it, it the book tells the journey of four generations of women, each with a unique relationship with water. And it's uh, during a time of extreme climate change and water shortage, mostly in Canada. Uh, that's where the book takes place. It spans over about 40 years, from the 2020s to the 2060s, and into the far future. Um, so it's mostly the diary of a limnologist, and then it's framed front and back by more in the future with a, a blue water being who finds this diary. So during the diarist's lifetime, so most of the book is the diary itself, we have uh, Canada, which is uh, um, basically run by a giant water utility called Canada Corp with powers to arrest and detain anybody. So this is a world where China owns America, and America in turn owns Canada. So the limnologist, Lina, witnesses and suffers uh, severe water taxes, imposed restrictions. There's dark intrigue through neighborhood water betrayals, corporate spying and espionage, and uh, repression, of course, of her scientific freedoms. Um, Some people die, others disappear. I'd say ultimately the book carries themes of hope and forgiveness um, (laughs) of ourselves and each other and uh, compassion for all things, starting with water. Wow. Yeah, that's that's quite a um, – recognizing the, the challenges to have it be on hope and forgiveness is a wonderful message to, uh, mm-hmm. to arise out of that. Uh, so now, um, 
why why frame this what why, why you know, this fictional um scientific why why did you choose to put the book in this particular format how you know how did it, how did you yeah. decide on the diary the generations and that kind of thing? yeah lots of reasons and it and they all worked for me, which is really kind of cool so the the diary is um well, I wanted it to be very real. Let's let's put it that way. Okay. Um, it's not mm-hmm. unlike Margaret Atwood. She says that she reports on all her books are based on something real, that something either has happened or is happening. So I wanted this mm-hmm. uh, personal relevance to what's actually going on, particularly okay. climate change right now. So a gritty realism of the mundane. And as you know, a diary is perfect for that, right? We We... There's a storytelling mm-hmm. aspect, but we're, it's it's sort of like going into, oh, what do you call that, um, these movies that are based on a real event, right, a real person. You really feel oh, yeah, like yeah. it. Oh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so um, mm-hmm. that wasn't enough because that was the gritty diary. So I gave, well, I gave perspective by creating Keo, the character in the future, who discovers this diary, which is her ancestor, right? Um, and she's in the far future, so that gives us a perspective of where we're going because Lena's diary is in the near future, right now and, and near future. And Keo shows us where that takes us and uh, allows me to create a larger perspective from a humanity point of view. So she she's, uh, starts and ends the story in, in the sacred boreal forest of the far future. She's blue-skinned, multi-armed human being, essentially a, a water being. And she's looking for answers mm. why the world is currently the way it is due to climate change and other things that humanity has caused. Um, there was this uh, these water twins who presumably destroyed the world, so that creates intrigue. So she frames the gritty diary part of the story and in a way she represents the future she's a young girl and in some ways you know part of her story is like a coming of age of self-discovery and growing maturity Mm. so given her metaphoric connection to water and the planet and a new humanity of sorts her character serves as a metaphor for humanity and its own coming of age and again the idea of Forgiveness and healing comes into play here with uh, between the characters, between all the characters, the four characters. They all have a different relationship to water and and ultimately in terms of how they relate to each other and water. So that sp- spins out the story. Wow. wow. Um, so now the, um, when it comes time to... Um, the progression of water, you know, as a resource. I mean, the idea to to get to that point of, you know, Canada Corp, you know, kind of being, um, how, how do you see in this real world environment, I mean, how close are we to, like, say, the, the beginning of, you know, the, um, the diary with, you know, the near future yeah. individual. Oh. Um, we're, there. <laughs> we're pretty much there. Um, you know, okay. <laughs> so a lot, well, it's mm-hmm. it's funny because it's a perception thing too. So um, mm-hmm. 
a lot of the book basically touches on the concept of water scarcity as well as other things okay. to do with water mm-hmm. and um, how we're dealing with it. But in truth, you know, water scarcity is more a perception than an actuality. And it's it's because water is being essentially diverted from here and there. Water is locked in glaciers and uh, mm-hmm. lakes that are not close by. Um, so there is, in fact, presumably and I remember reading this, there's pretty much enough water for everyone. But it's just not in the right places. And we're not Mm. doing the right things to it. So there becomes uh, a scarcity issue. And truly there is a scarcity issue, very real scarcity issue, between um, nations. So it's politicized. Uh, we have issues of water wars, right, between uh, Egypt, for instance, right. as an example, uh, pumping water from Lake Nasser into the Sahara. Meantime, tensions with nine upstream countries who want to control the water of the Nile, right? They want to put dams in and keep it up there, right? And meantime, mm-hmm. these guys are running out. It's everywhere. All rivers are affected this way. Uh, Kenya with Lake Victoria, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and China. Uh, We're talking about the Ganges, the Indus, which is drying up, and the Brahmaputra. All these are, you know, they're geopoliticized um, issues Mm -hmm. for water, controlling water. And then on top of that, we have the Chinese who are literally creating rain where they want in in order, you know, to to hydrate an area, but what they're doing is they're stealing rain from somewhere else. I mean, that's what how it works, mm. right? How water works. Right. When you play with the hydrological cycle, you don't create something out of nothing. You're moving things around. You impact so something, right, yeah. They're making other people kind of mad. Meantime, they're going, look, okay. look, look. <laughs> uh, wow. Russian, Russia's doing the same thing. India's doing the same thing. And then all these other things are happening. And I bring into the book one particular uh, example, and that's the NAWAPA, North America Power Alliance, sorry, Water Power Alliance. I always get that mixed up. The NAWAPA plan that was drawn up by uh, Ralph M. Parsons Company in 1964 and had a favorable review by Congress. The NAWAPA plan essentially was a giant diversion and reservoir plan to take water from Alaska and significant Mm -hmm. parts of the Yukon and British Columbia and then bring it all down to the western states. And Mm. one of the main areas was going to be this 800-kilometer Rocky Mountain Trench reservoir that would... um, basically be a major storage for water. So they were going to use it for storage and for uh, 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 electricity. Hydro, yeah. Yeah, hydropower. So this was envisioned, uh, you know, it was going to be the largest Mm. construction effort of all times. (laughs) Over 400 separate projects of dams, canals, and tunnels and everything. And you, if you think that's far-fetched, the Russians came up with a similar plan to, gr- to grab water out of Siberia, the same thing, and, and move it 
somewhere else. Um, I believe in Spain, is it Spain or Italy, they were looking at diverting from north to south, again, from mm-hmm. an area of plenty to an area of scarcity. And, of course, with with major, major environmental um, destructive destruction and yeah. impacts, mm-hmm. impacts to uh, indigenous communities, entire indigenous communities. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, these things are happening, and they could be happening, mm-hmm. and they might still be happening. So uh, I draw from that. Wow. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, every now and then you'll hear, you know, about the conflict, you know, water conflict between nations, and you know, and you know, unless you, you know, are attuned to that. But I mean, in, in general, every now and then something will pop up, you know, that that'll bring that to light. But mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea of um, water scarcity and um, you know, to me, and you, you, you talked about uh, the availability, you know, in, in glaciers and all, all, all different, you know, there's a lot, lots of water around. Um, but but that it was, you know, one of the driving forces is the, um, I guess, the diversion, you know, to, you know, areas in need. Um, it seems that um, we are... Um, like um, building in areas where it's not sustainable to to yeah. for from a water perspective. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, moving water around, and I mean the Canadians are really good at that. We built so many huge dams, and well, we're not the only ones. I don't know if you know this, but. Um, there's a weird statistic, and I, I write about it in my book, Water Is. It's bizarre. There are so many dams that have been built. Basically, what they do is what a dam does is it creates a reservoir, a reservoir of water. Mm-hmm. So in other words, water that was a river that was moving you know, at a certain rate from place to place to place is now being held in one place much longer. Right? So, mm-hmm. And... There are so many in the so many installations and large reservoirs in the northern hemisphere that it's actually changed by a, a micro amount. Of course, it's changed the axis of the Earth. <laughs> How hmm. is I'm not making this up. Honestly, I'm not. You can look it up and wow. it's a reference. I'm a scientist, so I, I make sure I cite everything. <laughs> got a place. But geologists have been looking at this. Geologists, of course, look at um, events over huge millennia of time, right? So they're able to uh, document things like that on a micro scale. And, mm-hmm. But, but that, what that does is it just establishes the massive nature of what we're doing, right. of how we're yeah. changing um, the the passage of the water uh, of its basically interfering with the hydrological cycle, and and this yeah, as you say, yeah, it, it, it has a lot of about, ramifications. 
Yeah, when you think about the, just the Earth as a whole and, and the multitude of ecosystems, with, you know, that it kind of <laughs> juggles at the same time, um, any blockage in any of those cycles um, would you know, it'd be like a cancer, you know, where, yeah. where it you know, prevents the flow and, you know, and backup and all, all kinds of things. So um, I'm not surprised about that. Well, I mean, it's an interesting fact about the, the, you know, the tilt, the effect of the tilt, even if it's minuscule. But, but to me, it, it just, when I think of like the human body, you know, as a system of, you know, a gathering of systems, you know, anytime any one of them um, has has a pocket or an issue, um, it really damages the whole. Yeah. And, in fact, this is, again, why I, I like to focus on water as, as a way of, I mentioned this before, as a way of, uh, as a lens, if you will, to look at everything else that's going on in the world, and particularly climate change, for instance, whether you you know, whatever mm-hmm. your thoughts are on that. Because, in fact, climate change, as an, one example, or even biodiversity in, in uh, ecosystems, all these issues, environmental issues, as well as social issues, oddly enough, I could argue that. That would be fun. But anyway, uh, to, to look at climate change, <laughs> climate change uh-huh. is definitely a water phenomenon in every aspect of how we are experiencing yeah. it from the... Well, some of us are already experiencing it For, further south, closer to the tropics, are already experiencing sea level rise. Some islands are disappearing. So right. sea level rise is a function of the melting glaciers and the melting ice caps. And storms, increased storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, etc., have to do with are all water phenomena responding to temperature in terms of how it behaves, where it goes. We have something called atmospheric rivers. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. about those. Atmospheric rivers are simply a way of describing water vapor in the air, which most of us don't think about when we think of breathing in and out. We are actually breathing in water all the time, which is in the air, and there's enough water in the air that, to match all the surface water that's, that's on the ground. That water will be funneled by winds and other phenomena into literally rivers that that go up, go down, and create storms or not. So, water's behavior in climate, in the climate, current climate, and the warming climate is changing as a function of that. So, it's causing all these storms. Then, if we look at the last huge area of water, which is our oceans, we have a similar thing going on, well, not similar, but also climate-induced. With all the melting of the glaciers and input of fresh water into the ocean, the saltwater ocean, is as well as change in temperature generally and the ocean warming is affecting the great ocean current. And this is an important aspect of the health of the ocean, the entire ocean. There's a current that runs north, south, east, west, etc., between the continents that's based on uh, salt water, fresh water gradient, and temperature gradient, so density, water density. 
and there's this wonderful little conveyor belt, that's why it's called that, that, that flows there based on a balance. And what's happening is that balance is being affected. And that conveyor belt may slow down and it may stop. And if it does, we're toast. Yeah, oh, it, it, it's crazy. <laughs> but um, it's <laughs> and presumably it's happened before, and it will happen again. Yeah, wow. Well, you know, um, the when you were talking about you know the oceans, um, last when it was announced, you know, I guess it was last month. Yeah, last month about that new the iceberg that just broke off in Antarctica. Yes. Antarctica. Yes. Um, yep. 1,500 square miles of iceberg. I mean, I mean, it's just, to me, it's just hard to comprehend. And then, you know, when you throw that mix into the current, um, yeah. you, know, and, you know, that cold iceberg is going to really yeah. do some temperature changes. Um, one of my colleagues in SF Canada, I belong to a science fiction professional writers community in, in Canada here. Um, his name is Craig Russell, and he wrote a book that had that as a premise. In fact, it was a larger piece, and it was it's called Fragment. And I do uh, suggest readers might enjoy that book as well because he creates a scenario around this giant fragment coming off, cleaving off um, Mm -hmm. Antarctica and moving north and the havoc that it creates. What's gorgeous about that book, though, is there is optimism in it, even though he's very much grounded in reality and how people act and there's some real Mm -hmm. jerks, excuse the language, whatever. (laughs) You know, there's a range of people. But then (laughs) the real hero of the story Mm -hmm. is a whale. (laughs) It's a humpback whale. And he tells this story beautifully. And it's, you know, talk Mm. about, again, what we were talking about, water having, you know, an identity or a personality or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Whales are very intelligent, very intelligent. And, yeah, it's beautifully written. And it is optimistic, yeah. and you know it brings up again this idea, this concept, this notion that we are part of something bigger, and we need to start owning up to that, and and um, appreciating the gifts again, gifts of others, of others that are not human, that live on this planet and make this planet what it is. It is just such a beautiful place. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Christina, we're at the end of the show. Um, so what what is it that you hope that the readers will take, some of the things that you hope that readers will take away um, from reading a diary in the age of water? Um, okay. <laughs> I have lots of things that I, I'd like them to take away, but I guess Right. Um, number one, it's, and, and this is, I'm looking at the reaction of readers already who have let me know uh, one way or another through mm-hmm. reviews or personally, is that they've come away with a super awareness of what's going on, and that's exactly what I wanted through the diary. Uh, everything that's in there, is, some have been really 
almost traumatized by it. But I've had this interesting mm-hmm. mix. They're, they both hated and loved the book. They were really scared <laughs> by it, uh-huh. but comforted by it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so this is this is because of the way that I put it together, and I'm glad to see that that's happening. I, ultimately, the book is about hope. It is. I mean, most mm-hmm. dystopias are optimistic. Otherwise, the cautionary tales. Otherwise, why would the author write them? So there right. is something to take away with that. There is a hopeful ending. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's. It may not necessarily be what people think it might be. But there is hope there. <laughs> um, right. Uh-huh. And so what would they take away? I, I would like to, to think that they're moved in some way. And whether they're, it's actionable, that would be a bonus. And I've been told that that is the case, which is, which is marvelous. So it's, it's eco-fiction right. that is inciting some action. Decisions, people are making decisions. So they've entered sufficiently into the story with the characters, with what's going on, to come out moved sufficiently to to do something, to change wow. or mm-hmm. talk about it or those types of things. And for an author, Robert, for an author, that's the highest thing that we could achieve. It is. It is. It, it is. It, it is. And it's wonderful to be able to get that feedback and um, and be able to kind of reach people at that level. I mean, to reach people to the level of taking action or, or doing things differently. Um, yeah. that's, that's that ripple effect in effect. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, you know, each of the protagonists is not perfect. They all have Right. Issues. They all have imperfections. Uh, the main protagonist, the, the limnologist diarist, is you know she's almost not likable. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. Um, <laughs> she, she has uh-huh. some real issues. Uh, you know, she's sort of greedy in a way and very very protective of her child, which is kind of you know every mother almost is. But you know she's she's a bit short sighted. And and that brings in this whole concept of forgiveness and the need to forgive because, in fact, there's issues between mm. her daughter and herself to do with how she's done things as a limnologist. And it yeah. goes back to this concept of knowing. And once you know, what do you do? Do you, do, do you act on it or do you not yeah. act on it? So there's this responsibility that comes with knowing, but there's also the downside of that. And so it, yeah. this book plays on on these types of issues, and um, yeah. Well, good. It sounds like a you know it's a, a very realistic um, kind of portrayal of, of people in, in the situation. So, um, well, Nina, I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. It's really been a treat. I've Thank learned you. a lot. And, um, and I mean, lem- limnology and limnologists are new from my Scrabble board. <laughs> so, All right. Um, <laughs> Glad to add those. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you for your time today, truly. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. Again, everyone, today, my special guest joining us again from Canada is Nina Montiano. Um, And uh, you can find out more about her book, A Diary in the Age of Water, by visiting her website, www.ninamontiano.ca. That's N I N A. 
M-U-N-T-E-A-N-U dot C-A. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show hey, is available as really a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.